Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So we're at the penultimate episode of the Clinical Reasoning series. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. In the final episode, I'll be chatting with Matthew Lowe, where we will be reflecting on the series as a whole and tying up any loose ends in regards to what this all means for clinical practice. And Matt's a good friend of the podcast, and he's been on several times talking about evidence-based practice, person-centred care, and causal dispositionism. He has an impressive combination of clinical experience and expertise, combined with a vice-like grip on theory and evidence for practice, and have linked our previous conversations in the show notes. And a big thank you to all of you supporting the podcast and the series. Needless to say, your support makes the show possible. And I've received quite a few questions and comments as a result of the series. So I thought I'd dedicate some time in responding to some of them in a clinical reasoning themed Ask Me Anything. So as with all AMAs, the questions I received are wide ranging. So I've tried to choose a good spread and will seek to cover as much ground as time and energy allows. So first question. Has the series changed your view of clinical reasoning? A great question. I think it's worth sharing with you how I used to view clinical reasoning and how that view has shifted. Not necessarily as a result of the series, but more of a maturation of my thinking, knowledge and my practice. As I've mentioned on the podcast before, much of my early research and doctoral work investigated clinical reasoning. I was particularly interested in how health professionals in my case osteopaths, worked with patients to formulate diagnoses and co-construct treatment and management plans. Many of my studies utilised interviews, but also observation and video recording of clinical interactions. Subsequently, I developed a grounded theory, which provided a description and explanation of how osteopaths reason and conceptualise their practice and make decisions with their patients. The theory also went a small way to providing a possible explanation as to the variation that we see in clinical practice and in many corners of healthcare. For example, you go to three different healthcare professionals and you may have a vastly different clinical experience, a different clinical interaction, different clinical procedures undertaken, a different diagnosis and different treatment and management approach and I've linked these papers in the show notes. So back to the question. Before I embarked on my PhD, as a clinician I had a pretty traditional cognitive and biomedical view of clinical reasoning, that it was centred on the thinking and action, focused on the identification of biological or disease processes, and that I could collect and extract all the information that I needed from patients through skilled clinical methods. I was the one that came up with a bunch of differential diagnoses which would capture the biological process at play and that a course of treatment would logically and naturally flow 
from the emergence of this diagnostic label. Patients had little to say or contribute other than to consent to me looking at and looking into their bodies and the associated physiological and biomechanical processes. They would be required to just lie there or sit there and permit me to just let me do my thing. I believed I had all the necessary skills and knowledge to find out what was going on and then I could decide what treatment was best. So at this point, early on in my clinical career, clinical reasoning for me was problem-solving, where I was a detective and my patients were a collection of little or big problems to figure out. There were hidden culprits, which were responsible for a person's pain and suffering, whether it be nerve, muscle, joint or organ, and these gremlins were just waiting there to be found by me. But fortunately, now I think about clinical reasoning quite differently. At its most basic level, clinical reasoning is about asking and attempting to answer the question, why is this person suffering? And what can or should I do to help them? And as you can see from the series, this pursuit is far more than just merely trying to figure out a diagnosis or trying to solve a problem or collection of problems. In trying to understand why a person is suffering, and how we might help them, we need to think about and be aware of our assumptions around the following. What is suffering for this person? Who is this person? What are their values, their preferences, their social context, their life world? We're encouraged to think about our notions of why, or our views around what's causing this person suffering. Is our clinical gaze towards single biological biomedical agents that's causing a person to suffer or is causation a much more complex idea and situated across a landscape of interacting social cultural biological and psychological phenomena and as we heard from my conversations with Bjorn Hoffman and Claire Delaney there are questions of ethics such as why should I help this person Or how should I help this person? We can also think about how we perceive ourselves in relation to our patients and our therapeutic role. For example, do we see ourselves as fixers, looking to find and mend patients' problems, or as someone to guide, support, and be with that suffering person? And there are other questions around knowledge, such as what knowledge or evidence may assist me in helping this person and how does this evidence relate to the unique situation that this person is in? And finally, there are reflexive questions such as how am I thinking about and conceptualising the situation? What are my assumptions and my values and how might these be impacting and influencing this therapeutic moment? So as you can see, there are many, almost an infinite number of probing and analytical questions to contemplate when thinking and talking about clinical reasoning. And I completely accept that there's a risk of paralysis by analysis when critically scrutinising every single turn, every single assumption, when it comes to how we might help a suffering person. And I'm certainly not advocating that one goes through a mental checklist to address each of these before engaging with the patient. But having some knowledge of the depth 
breadth and complexity of what it means to see, hear and understand a person who is suffering and seeking our care and how we might begin to think about helping them is quite rightly a question that should both challenge and trouble us and it deserves some purposeful contemplation. So I'm delighted and incredibly grateful to all my guests in the series who have touched on these areas and not only reinforced but provided new ways to think about clinical reasoning. I hope it's clear that it's far more than just thinking about disease, diagnoses and treatment. Okay, next question. Do you think that the different musculoskeletal professions, such as physiotherapy, osteopathy and chiropractic, clinically reason differently? Are there any distinctive features of each? Well, I think it depends on how you're framing clinical reasoning. I think that the modes of logic which might derive a diagnosis and suggest a clinical or therapeutic intervention, such as deduction, induction, or other cognitive ways of viewing clinical reasoning, such as how knowledge is organised into scripts or schemata, so it can easily be accessed once a clinical pattern is recognised. For example, you recognise the familiarity of a particular constellation of signs and symptoms in a particular patient of a certain age, and then you can efficiently forward reason towards a diagnosis and possible treatment. I think these cognitive processes and strategies are common across all healthcare professionals. However, where it becomes a little more distinct is in regards to the frameworks and theories we might utilise in our clinical reasoning, and which shades and shapes what we see and how we view our clinical reality. If these theories and frameworks are tied to a particular professional identity and ideology, then shrouding the previously mentioned cognitive strategies with them will give a sense of thinking or reasoning like a physio, an osteo or a chiro. But in reality, the cognitive processes remain the same. Deduction, induction, pattern recognition, etc. So for example, osteopaths have theories and frameworks about optimal blood flow and fascial connections. Physios have theories around core and trunk stability. Chiros have models around pelvic and spinal asymmetry. These theories guide these practitioners to focus their deductive, inductive and abductive reasoning processes within a particular paradigm. Their clinical reasoning and action will be consistent with and informed by the beliefs and assumptions of that paradigm. And these practitioners will draw upon knowledge relevant to these theories and relate previous clinical experiences and stored patient scenarios to what's similar, different, familiar or unfamiliar with the current patient presentation. And this will guide their clinical decision making. The beautiful thing here is that we can utilise any software we choose and wipe any previous outdated models and nonsensical frameworks. And I apologise for the computer analogies. But just think about the possible theories and frameworks I've covered in the podcast, or even just in the series. For example, there was Sanya Maritich talking about how structural competency can shroud our reasoning, engagement and action in our patients' social worlds. 
such a theoretical view may encourage us to take notice of and pursue areas of clinical salience which is not captured by traditional biomedical or professional frameworks. Or consider how the philosophy of phenomenology or the theories of an activism that I chatted with Peter Stilwell and Sabrina Connings with can help us causally integrate different clinical phenomena such as neuropeptides, with knees, with cognitions, with spines, and with social relationships. Then there was a legendary cause health series, which provided an entire theory of causation, and can help us answer questions such as, why is this particular patient having this particular health issue at this particular time? And what forms of evidence are relevant in this individual case? Thinking about causation in this way can influence how and what we consider evidence to be, and may motivate us to give primacy to narrative forms of evidence, such as qualitative research, or the rich and detailed narratives co-constructed with patients during a clinical interaction. Then there's the philosophical stance of relativism, which I spoke about in episode 52 with Martin Cush. Such a theoretical lens can help us be aware of, and reflect upon, the instability of knowledge and practice, and how relativism provides us with a sense of epistemic humility, and we should recognise the frailty of certainty, and the temporality of truth. It also motivates us to think about the particular and local value system that our patients may be operating in, and we should seek to understand them, even if they're different to our own. So all these theories, frameworks and philosophies transcend cognitive processes related to clinical reasoning. They fly above the professional identities and philosophies and traditional turf wars and disputes about what it is to think like a physio, think like a chiro or think like an osteo. So in short, no, the reasoning processes are all the same, but the theories which different professionals might think with may well give the impression of some distinctiveness especially if they're utilising a theory or philosophy which is tied to that professional identity. However, drawing upon theories such as those that I described provides a way of clinical reasoning which is professionally agnostic but theoretically distinctive. Finally, do you have any suggestions about how to get better at clinical reasoning? Um, I often get asked this and I never feel I have a satisfactory answer. Firstly, because it's not clear what it means to get better at clinical reasoning. Traditionally, the notion of better or good is narrow and situated within a biomedical or positivist paradigm, such as good clinical reasoning is measured by the number of different diagnoses that a clinician can arrive at, or the speed at which clinicians can get to the right or correct diagnosis. But these presume that clinical reasoning expertise resides within and around diagnosis. But as we've seen, it's far, far more than that. And a related question is, what constitutes an expert? And this is a question which has troubled healthcare researchers for decades, and only second to the question, how do I become an expert? So notwithstanding the issue of the term expert, which suggests a final and static position, we might ask, what comes after the position of expert? Is an expert the person or clinician that gets the best clinical outcome, regardless of means or clinical reasoning processes? 
But as I speak about this, I must direct you to the two episodes I dedicated to the topic of expertise with Carlo Martini, who I spoke to in episodes 53 and 54. And Carlo covers these questions and topics with much more depth and brilliance than I can here. And I've linked these episodes in the show notes. But back to the question. So clearly knowledge is important, and I mean all forms of knowledge, such as biomedical, ethical, moral, aesthetic, personal, etc. So I'd recommend reading, listening and talking as ways to develop deep knowledge in these areas. But read far and wide, and away from the standard healthcare diet of anatomy, physiology and pathology. But of course these are important too. Clinical experience also seems necessary, but not sufficient. I.e. clinical experience and seeing patients is important as it helps us develop our clinical and technical skills. They become routinized and we become efficient and can attend to multiple cues and tasks during a clinical interaction. Clinical experience also allows us to store, remember and recall previous patient encounters and recognize those moments which seem relatively familiar and straightforward and notice others which might appear to be less familiar, more uncertain and more complex. So just being in difficult and challenging clinical situations and reflecting on these moments, either quietly by ourselves or more profoundly with a clinical colleague, a friend or a mentor, where we can explicate and interrogate what we were thinking and feeling and how we might do things differently in the future. This can really develop our confidence and capability in reasoning. And as I said before when I spoke with Ethan Young on episode... 65 on epistemic reflexivity. Just living long enough or being in practice long enough doesn't automatically lead to expertise. It requires deliberate and focused reflection, action and course correction. And finally, I hope this podcast series might help, even in just a minor way. I would hope that by listening to each episode, engaging in some of the links within the show notes, will allow you to then pose some reflective questions yourself about how these topics relate to your reasoning, thinking, action and practice. The episodes may have highlighted blind spots in your reasoning and practice. So think about what tacit assumptions the episodes have exposed in your practice. How might these areas be developed? How might developing these areas impact your practice and enhance your patient care? But don't do this all at once. Do it slowly and enjoy the process, even if it feels tortuous at times. Anyway, that's it for now. Thanks again to you all for listening, sharing and supporting the Words Matter podcast. And a huge thank you to all the guests that have shared their own reasoning and thinking so wonderfully. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.